we really change the way that our organizations think about how they do learning and taking it away from being sort of one single individual's role that they hate to being a thing that everybody can contribute to and how they build and create really effective uh, educational teachings and trainings. Brett, where are you? Uh, where are you joining us from today? Yeah, I am here in Hawaii right now. I've been living here for most of this year, and at the end of this month, I'm celebrating with uh, my parents visiting, showing them to Hawaii for their first time, and then we're after that. I'm actually moving back to the Bay. Nice. I mean, that is a. Did you just head there for for pandemic? Yeah, I came out here like last Christmas, basically, and just stayed here. It was way better to be here than it was to be in in the bay uh during most of the pandemic but i've spent a lot of time here it's been really nice and i'm also really itching to get back to a lot of my friends over there and kind of my my network and a lot of the available activities and climbing gyms and also just to have a have a home that feels like a good long-term home to settle back into and do some nesting yeah yeah that's that's fantastic i i actually had a, a similar idea i was living in the bay when coronavirus hit um, ended up uh, moving to Tahoe for six months. And then just about a month ago, very similar to you, was feeling the like, I've been going kind of, I've kind of been everywhere. I've been moving all around. It's time to actually get to a, a stable place. So I, I just moved back to Menlo Park at the start of this month. Oh, nice. Very, very, very similar. Are you from the Bay originally? Uh, no, I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, oh, I nice. grew up there for my whole life and then like early adulthood moved out and went nomadic location independent. I lived in Mexico for a while and got really into skydiving and paragliding and base jumping Uh as air sports and traveled a lot for those and spent up to three months at a time tourist visa length, essentially in a lot of places like South Africa, Turkey, Switzerland, a lot of trips to places like Norway, Iran, Malaysia, China, the Arctic, uh, That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I just did that for a long time, running running this business as a freelance operation for most of that time, and then eventually it yep. just grew. You know, turned into turned into a real company, and I was kind of bewildered till one day wake up and be like, "Oh wait, how'd this happen?" <laughs> oh wait, my my company is a real thing. Yeah, and I did a little bit of traveling as as well. I I lived in South Africa for about three months while I was in college. Brazil for about three months. Uh, and then I did a year in Ireland uh, post. Uh, I was on a George Mitchell scholarship, but also got a chance to play some professional basketball. So definitely oh, nice. understand the nomadic life as well as the world of like kind of working on a side project that then slowly grows into a thing that's suddenly big and real. Uh, yeah. And I'm sort of yeah. very fortunate to say, wow, I got to actually create a company out of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, this this has been so far a pretty good intro, and I'd love to get into this more. But bef- before I do, I want to talk to our audience a little bit about to about who you are and to to briefly introduce you. So, uh, everybody, this is Sasha Seymour. He is the co-founder and COO of Learn to Win. Uh, Learn to Win is a mobile-first learning management system. And as we just started discussing, Sasha, in addition to be, being co-founder and CEO, COO of Learn to Win, he was a Stanford MBA and a former naval intelligence officer. Uh, yeah, Stanford MBA. He was a Stanford MBA and a formal naval intelligence officer and McKinsey consultant. He also 
He was also a walk-on basketball player at UNC Chapel Hill and played pro ball in the Irish Pro League. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Uh, originally from from North Carolina. Um, was actually a, a soccer player growing up. I think I, I mentioned briefly before that my uh, my grandfather had been an All-American uh, soccer player at, at Cleveland State University, which is at the time was Finn. And so was kind of heads down focused on that. And then uh, in high school, hit a, hit a pretty major growth spurt. Um, and so became sort of this quasi awkward, like half soccer player, half basketball player. Um, but was fortunate in high school to earn uh, a really prestigious scholarship uh, to go study at the University of North Carolina called the Moorhead Kane. Uh, I got to UNC, discovered that they had a JV team, uh, played on that my first two years at North Carolina, and then my, my senior year got to walk onto the varsity team. So as a sort of, I don't know, relatively average-sized kid growing up from a, a small town in eastern North Carolina who never really had I always probably had dreams of playing basketball at North Carolina, but certainly never thought that it would ever be a reality. Uh, I was kind of fortunate in the way that life events worked out such that I, I got that chance. Um, yeah. And that was a, a really phenomenal experience. Um, and I'll go into the, the Ireland piece a little bit. I actually was in Ireland for, for a totally different reason. Uh, in college, I'd been really involved with sports as a method of conflict transformation and sports as a method of conflict resolution. Interesting. Um, it, it's a it's a bit of a, a longer story, but I I kicked a soccer ball across the state of North Carolina and I, I basically helped found an organization that, that used soccer and use sports as a method for bringing people together uh, in countries and places where uh, they would have been divided by conflict or other sorts of reasons. Um, and so was going to, to Northern Ireland on, on what's called a George Mitchell scholarship. So a, a fully funded scholarship to, to Ireland. I was one of 12 Americans selected to go over and basically was, was doing a master's in conflict transformation and social justice at Queens University Belfast in Northern Ireland, and basically sort of dual uh, studying and getting my master's degree while also working in the community, uh, helping to use sports and basketball as a method to help bring communities together from sort of more Catholic Republican uh, backgrounds and Irish or sorry, British Protestant backgrounds. Uh, and then while I was there, uh, basically uh, one of the one of the local pro teams, I don't remember whether I reached out or they reached out, uh, but got a chance to play with them for a year, which was a which was a ton of fun. Wow, so this is fascinating. You just you just said a whole lot there that I'd love to double click on and unpack. Uh, one of them that maybe we could just put a bookmark in is kicking a soccer ball across North Carolina. But the thing I'm really interested in right now is the idea of sports development as conflict resolution. So when I when I think of sports and conflict, I imagine that within a team, you know, you you might have conflicts within a team, and you you work to resolve those conflicts so that you can have a cohesive cohesive team, and that's just you know the whole idea of teamwork. And that's the metaphor that we often bring into business is in, in teamwork. But also, also what I perceive to see in sports is that between teams and between fandoms of teams, you end up just having like increased conflict. Uh, when, you know, in the, in the United States and, you know, football teams and basketball teams, there's like, it's like a friendly rivalry, friendly conflict. And mm -hmm. there's a way that that can kind of create a cultural cohesion. And then you, you look in, you know, soccer, or other what other people call football in the world, uh, yeah. and you see just like stadiums being torn down and riots after you know major games. And I'm curious how how do you approach this when, when if you're going into 
are, you know, a group of people, you, you mentioned Republicans, it might, might be that you're talking about like political groups or. Yeah, I wasn't talking about sort of the U.S. Republicans or Democrats in the way that you might uh, understand it. I was talking about mm. uh, people in, in Northern Ireland and specifically those right. who want Ireland, want Northern Ireland to be a part of Ireland versus people who would like to be to remain a part of the, the United Kingdom. Um, and there's two different groups there and they've historically uh, they've historically fought. So how, how does that work? What, how did you approach using using sports to bridge that conflict? So I think, I think for me, um, the kind of history of it is is just experiences that I had growing up in, uh, and and I think realizing the kinds of bonds and experiences that I could build with people who weren't like me uh, using the game of soccer or using the game of basketball. And I think in many ways, uh, athletics transcends this idea of class. It transcends the idea of race. It transcends this, uh, even, even language barriers. My, my freshman year at North Carolina, I played on the club soccer team and my sort of two best friends that I made throughout the, the program there, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, and then the two best friends that I made, I've actually made through club soccer and playing pickup soccer. Uh, yeah. and I'm Christian. And then, uh, Dylan, uh, is Jewish, uh, and then Ahmed was Muslim. And the sort of three of us, uh, were just sitting around talking one day about the sort of power of this idea that, um, we had sort of come together through athletics to become really good friends and had, had sort of translated those cultural barriers through, through, through the game of soccer. And we were talking about it and, uh, ended up just finding a, finding a website, ended up Googling it, uh, and finding a group that worked in the Middle East Palestine area, uh, under this idea that, uh, if a Christian is passing to a Jew is passing to a Muslim, it's not a Christian passing to a Jewish person, passing to a Muslim person, but uh, a teammate passing to a teammate. And that idea that you mm-hmm. talked about a little bit before of, Hey, if you've got to go through conflict together, if you've got to work together on a team to get a ball into a hoop, uh, that helps to sort of break down barriers and create understanding in a place that you might not be able to communicate otherwise. And so uh, we got really fired up by by the group and the work that they were doing um, and ended up deciding to dribble a soccer ball across the state of North Carolina uh, the summer after our freshman year. Uh, it was about 350 miles we kicked across the state. Um, and was just a, a tremendous experience. I learned a ton about myself. I learned a ton about uh, people who were from Jewish backgrounds and Muslim backgrounds. We got to talk with uh, community members across the entire state of North Carolina. People opened up their homes to let us stay mm-hmm. there or to speak at the local churches or synagogues or mosques. Um, and that theme kind of continued throughout the, the course of my, my career at North Carolina. It's a, just my undergraduate career. Uh, and then... Uh, I ended up going to Northern Ireland to study on the George Mitchell Scholarship to continue pursuing some of some of that work that I'd been I'd been doing. And then in, in sort of a, a Belfast context, uh, the example that I would give is there's an organization called Peace Players, um, and they use basketball specifically. But the way that organization works is very similar to the group that I described, where uh, if you're playing soccer and you've got a Christian person who passed to a Jewish person who passed to a Muslim person, it's not that, but rather a teammate passed to a teammate. And they do a very similar mm-hmm. thing, but with um, people from two different sides of the, the conflict spectrum in Northern Ireland, uh, and they do it with basketball. And it's usually with children at a younger age who haven't necessarily formed a lot of these preconceived notions of what the other side might look like yet. 
Um, so I, I did that for for uh, a bit of time, and it was a fantastic experience. I'm a I'm a big supporter of it. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you how did you find yourself uh, in the position that you that you are now founding founding a learning management company? And how did, how how is that similar to you know? the team kicking a soccer ball across North Carolina. How are you, how are you bringing all of this experience into what you're doing now? And how did you find yourself there? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think so for, for, uh, uh, yeah, I guess a little bit of background, it's, it's kind of a, a parallel story, but not everything touches in the same places. Um, my, I mentioned before my, my senior year, I got a chance to, to walk onto the, the men's basketball team at, at Chapel Hill and when I joined, it was sort of a, a childhood dream come true. It was amazing experience. I was so excited. But um, I also struggled a little bit initially learning uh, our playbook. I'm not the smartest of the players. And so I was a little bit behind sometimes in trying to figure out what was going on and what was happening. And my roommate at the time, Andrew, had been really working on flipping some of the ways that traditional college instruction was done at Chapel Hill. Um he had basically worked with uh, Professor Hogan, so Dr. Kelly Hogan, on changing the ways that they were teaching some introductory STEM courses away from, I think, the traditional model of classroom learning that most of us might have uh, grown up with, which is, I'm a professor, I get up, I talk for an hour, uh, I lecture at someone, you kind of frantically write down notes, uh, and then uh, you're tested on it in two or three weeks. Uh, and instead, changing it to much more of a blended learning and a flipped classroom model where we basically you get a little bit of information, but then you don't do a quiz question on it or you get a little bit of information and then you've got to work on it together in a group or a peer setting. And the uh, idea behind it is that you're placing kind of three core pillars around the instruction, which is structure. Uh, engagement, like forcing people to engage, and then feedback and evaluation. So you're always testing, always seeing what people know, always trying to figure out, uh, do people actually understand this material? And let's teach to the things that they don't know. And so Andrew and I were, were talking about this in our, our you know, dorm room as seniors and undergrad. And we said, well, what if we could take some of the best practices and uh, sort of education pedagogy that we had Andrew was trying to develop as student body president at, at, at North Carolina for our, our college instruction and bring them to the world of athletics. Like what if we could take that background and bring it to athletic teams and football teams and basketball teams? And what if we could basically create an education platform that would uh, build some of those education practices of structure, of engagement, of continuous feedback uh, into the teaching plans of any football coach or basketball coach. And so the idea was to create almost like a uh, sort of three-pronged platform, uh, kind of on the one side uh, and uh, almost like a Rosetta Stone or a Duolingo type of learning interface. So like something that would be available on somebody's cell phone, highly engaging, they would get maybe a quick video of a play and then they'd have to draw with their finger the route they needed to take. Or uh, they would get uh, a video of a play and then they'd have to film themselves talking through what they needed to do. Um, hmm. But then an authoring side that uh, made it really, really easy for any sort of coach or instructor or teacher who may not necessarily be the most 
tech savvy or an expert in education pedagogy, but could basically build and design lessons that all followed this sort of structure, engagement, feedback uh, structure um, as easily as they might create uh, a PowerPoint uh, or their traditional physical playbook. Um, and then with an analytics suite that allowed you to see, all right, here's a little bit here, like we sent out a quiz, here's the information we're seeing on what people are getting right and wrong. Now, in terms of shifting our game plan for this week, uh, we're going to go teach to this thing, this thing, and this thing, and, and really fill the knowledge gaps of what our players are understanding. Um, so that was the original concept of the idea. It was our, our senior year in North Carolina, uh, had it, thought it was was really exciting. Um, <clears throat> ended up the, the two of us, um, I graduated, I went to uh, Ireland for the year on the, the Mitchell Scholarship and the Play of the Year of Professional Basketball. Uh, then went to McKinsey and Company for two years. Um, Andrew went to go work for the African Leadership University, which is a, a series of, of tertiary universities in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, then he and I uh, came back and we actually reunited at the, the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And uh, while we were there, said, hey, you know, we've been talking about this idea long enough. We really think it's got some traction. Let's go. Let's go do it. Um, so uh, essentially founded the company while at, while at Stanford, uh, originally focused it on uh, athletic programs, um, had a ton of success there. It's grown to about 150 different athletic programs. Um, but as we were kind of building and creating the tool, we realized that what we were creating wasn't necessarily just solving a problem that was specific to athletic programs, but was really solving a, a human learning problem. And what we saw was that there were tons of different organizations that had similar types of problems to what uh, to what we were solving for athletic programs. And it's, it's basically a term that I'll call uh, the last mile learning problem, which mm. uh, this may require a little bit of sort of academic uh, backgrounds that hold, hold, stay with me here. Uh, yeah. In sort of an educational world, there's kind of two different ways that you can classify knowledge. There's a bunch of different ways, but the two that we look at are sort of foundational knowledge, which is sort of this uh, like foundational, everybody needs to know it. And then there's the sort of specific knowledge to a particular organization uh, that we call our sort of last mile learning uh, that really is what drives a lot of their performance. And if I, I give a few examples of this, uh, one example might be, for a football team, all the foundational knowledge that you would need to know is um, uh, everything that you might have learned in Pop Warner football. If here's how, how the rules work, here's how you throw a football, uh, here's how you block, here's how you tackle, right. etc. And then the last mile learning is, um, and there's tons of resources to do foundational knowledge because it's ubiquitous across across a lot of things. In a similar way that there's a ton of resources for doing this. Um, Udemy, Coursera, uh, LinkedIn Learning, like all of those provide a ton of basically foundational knowledge for organizations and for the military. Um, what Learn to Win provides is that last mile learning. So we made it just super, super easy for a football coach to take their playbook and teach uh, that last mile learning what their playbook is in a really pedagogically effective way. Or we made it really easy for a business to take the way that they teach that sort of last mile material, which is at the moment currently sitting in the brains of some line expert, but for like basically learning and development hasn't had a chance to, to keep up with the sort of speed at which that changes. 
um, and basically allow them to build and create their own pedagogically effective material um, as easy as, as they might otherwise, as they're probably currently doing, creating a PowerPoint or creating a physical uh, email or sheet of paper to, to teach these kinds of things. Um, and so just in terms of, I'll step back a little bit, in terms of the chronological history of Learn to Win, to go back to the chronological story, um, started in athletics, realized that our tool could be used in a, a wide plethora of different places. Um, so then shifted to start working with uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, you mentioned before my, my Navy background. I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a former intelligence officer. I'm, I'm a current reservist. Um, and I was basically realizing that uh, a lot of the work that I was doing with the, the U.S. Navy and a lot of the training that I was doing could be really improved by a tool like Learn to Win. Um, so we ended up taking a class at Stanford called Hacking for Defense, where the DOD takes problems that the U.S. DOD face gives them to Stanford students and tells them to go sort of solve those problems. Uh, and so we basically ended up partnering with the uh, U.S. Air Combat Command uh, on a problem that they were having with the U-2 planes and basically doing emergency procedures trainings with the U-2. Mm. Uh, and so we shifted and adopted our platform to fit what they needed. Uh, and then two months after the class ended, signed a contract with the Air Force. And from that point on, I've actually scaled up to about 30 different partners across the across the navy doing training smaller partnerships with the marine corps another one just kicking off a space force um, and as a part of that i've actually uh, invested pretty significantly into uh cybersecurity. and so we're now the actually the only mobile learning platform right now that has uh basically u.s department of defense cybersecurity clearance up to il6 mm. secret um which is oh, yes which is please really let's cool. improve that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Help. yeah. Uh, and so uh in that vein we've also started working with some larger enterprise businesses as well again uh, mostly in the vein of what i described before of helping them serve their last mile training so examples would be helping to train drive-through employees at chick-fil-a or sales team members on uh what's their competitor's product and what they should be talking about with their own personal product or training uh, manufacturing companies on here's the correct way to install this widget versus that widget, um, things in, in that vein. And it's yeah. been a I mean, tremendous journey so far. We, we raised a, a $4 million venture capital around from uh, Norwest Venture Partners uh, and their managing partner, Jeff Crow. Crow and the team pretty significantly have brought in world-class leaders from Silicon Valley veterans to uh, sort of learning experts to people who are experts in sales in sort of the government space to really talented engineers across Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. Uh, I really built something that we we feel is changing the way that, especially for this last mile piece, people think mm -hmm. about training and learning. Uh, and instead of it being a thing that is boring or not fun or it takes up a huge ton of time to create, we really change the way that our organizations think about how they do learning and taking it away from being sort of one single individual's role that they hate to being a thing that everybody can contribute to and how they build and create really effective uh, educational teachings and trainings. Um, yeah. And so earlier you called us uh, an, an LMS and I sort of, I didn't say anything, but I winced a little bit because we don't necessarily use that term. Uh, it's fine. We, mm. can, we can be classified there, but um, we usually partner with somebody's LMS. We're much more of a, uh, I don't even know what we would call ourselves, uh, but, but generally not an LMS. 
Yeah. Well, I guess I, I like the I like the last mile. Uh, unfortunately, that's also L M. <laughs> try to act, make an acronym again. Last mile learning Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting there that you had this this interface between government and private sector work, and I've seen that that before. And there's just always a lot of just really interesting lessons to transfer from one to the other, how those sectors can interact, and just how different they are to deal with and to to interact yeah. with as 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 customers. And can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I'll, I'll probably start a little bit with like why did we even choose the federal government as a market in the first place and why the department mm. of defense is a market in the first place when at least in terms of silicon yeah at least in silicon valley terms most of the time when you hear early stage startup going to pursue the government people kind of look at you with a, a side eye glance of like are you insane um but i i i think uh to give a a, a little bit of context again my career and background as a uh, reservist in the in the U.S. Navy, um, there's currently a, a shift uh, in the United States' focus from a, from a military and geopolitical perspective uh, away from uh, not near peer conflict. So hunting terrorists, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, uh, and Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and shifting our focus much more heavily towards uh, great power conflict and near peer competitors like Russia and China, and specifically China. And as a result of that, uh, a huge part of the focus from a U.S. military perspective, uh, if it hasn't happened yet, it, it needs to shift uh, much more away from this idea of, well, do we have these particular I don't know, tanks on the ground that we can use to hunt terrorists towards how do we build software systems that can compete with the Chinese? How do we build technology and advanced technology that compete with the Chinese? How can mm -hmm. we basically build systems that are going to allow the United States to remain the preeminent global superpower and that the sort of neoliberal idea of democracy, of, uh, of like human rights, of the freedoms that we enjoy each day is the preeminent uh, view around the world globally and culturally uh, in a way that, uh, I mean, if you've read Xi Jinping's vision of what the future of uh, a future global world order that he envisions is, doesn't look like that at all. And while, <clears throat> I don't know, the, the treatment of Uyghurs today uh, in concentration camps in uh, Western China is, is certainly not... Um, certainly not Holocaust level. It's probably as close as you could get in the year 2021. And so I think it's imperative that the United States like do something about this. And as a part of that, uh, the sort of government has realized that they need to figure out the, how they do contracting work with Silicon Valley and how they do contracting work with, uh, with technology companies that are based in the Bay Area. Uh, and so there's been this sort of innovator push throughout the DOD of ways that they can figure out how to do contracting better, of ways that they can support startups better, of ways that they can help foster this ecosystem of innovative ideas within Silicon Valley uh, that can really help the United States continue to maintain our edge against China. And Learn to Win, as a company that's designed to help elite performers and elite competitors, especially with our work with athletic teams, um, felt that that was a, a great opportunity for us as a company, both to help 
both in terms of all the similarities we saw between high-performing athletic programs and uh, groups and units within the Department of Defense, uh, but also a huge market opportunity in terms of the ways that the DOD was shifting funding away from some of the larger primes to these more innovative startup ecosystems um, and a way that we could do a service that uh, a lot of people in our company and our organization really care about. Um, so that was sort of the initial idea of why, why even pursue it in the first place. Um, but you're right, there are huge differences in the ways that uh, the government procures software and the ways that uh, commercial enterprises procure software. Um, to be honest, the government still, there's, there's pockets that get it. And then there's a lot of other places where government systems are really set up to purchase a software in the same way that you might purchase a tank. So you buy one right. tank. Uh, and then you don't have to buy another tank for 15 years. Whereas like enterprise software is a recurring model where you have to purchase it every single year and it's on a per user license fee. And these are all things that are very standard in the commercial world because it's moved much faster uh, and the government hasn't done that yet. Um, and -hmm. there's also still sort of challenges and other things that you have to maneuver around of, well, this new administration came in and they care less about this or this group came in and they care more about this and funding shifts and moves regardless of the value that you're providing to your end customer. And so that happens in the commercial space some, but it's, it's generally less, less political. Yeah, um, that makes sense. So for us, as we've sort of been building our business, uh, we've thought about it in kind of two different ways. I think one, we wanted to bring in real experts on the federal side. So we hired up a, a VP of government markets who's been selling into the, the, sort of uh, federal space since longer than I've been alive. Uh, he used to be the former head of federal for, for Skillsoft. So uh, really understands the space, understands how the contracts work, understands how the backend relationships work. And that's been a, a huge benefit to my co-founder, Andrew, and I, as we've sort of continued to pursue that opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And we've sort of made a dual push and a dual focus of wanting to build up our commercial business at the same speed and the same rate that we've been building up our federal business uh, with this idea of if <clears throat> we get caught in some weird government budgeting cycle, we'll still have our growing, thriving commercial business to, to work with as well. Um, and But let's not miss out on this opportunity that we have in the federal space, given all of the amazing work uh, that uh, we've already done in that space, all of the incredible partners we have already, our cybersecurity requirement that he checked off, which was certainly not easy for us to get as a smaller tech company, um, and this new wave that we really do believe is coming of uh, basically the federal government and the Department of Defense learning how to work differently with Silicon Valley tech companies. Yeah, I think that that's happening across just the entire government is figuring out how to work, in, even in terms of uh, just how to how to handle transitioning licenses across state lines for like licensed uh, professionals, you know, the, so many of these different things. But I think we could talk about that for hours. Uh, but we are getting close to our time, so I just want to close with one one brief question: uh, what what from your from your experience in using sports to to grow through conflict, what's one thing that you've brought into managing your team and leading leading the people within your company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think I think there's there's two lessons from it that I'll, I'll talk a little bit about. Um, <clears throat> I think the, the 
first one is just I I didn't realize how much I I didn't realize how much leading a company feels and acts and reminds me of being an athletics coach. Uh, when you're a, when you're a, an elite level basketball coach, your job uh, you can't you can't like dunk the ball into the hoop. You can't cross somebody up and make the pass. Like what mm. your role is is to put a recruit the right players onto the team. B put those players in a position to succeed. Uh, C set the strategy and vision of what we're going to go do, and then D get out of the way so that your hoopers can ball. And yeah. Like that one, two, three, four is almost identical to what I do on a day-to-day basis as somebody who's founding and leading a company is like, A, you got to recruit five stars. So like you bring in really, really good people. Um, B, you put them in the right positions to succeed. You make sure that your point guards are playing point and they're not playing center. C, you come up with a game plan for, hey, here's how we're going to go execute and do this thing. And then D, you got to get out of the way so that your hoopers can fall. And I, that seems like a very maybe oversimplified sports metaphor. Uh, and I, I think I can be accused of that sometimes. Simple can be very powerful. And I really like that. But, but it's, it's a sort of powerful lesson. And I'm, I'm very thankful that I had the chance to kind of watch elite coaches uh, at North Carolina. I mean, I was, I was on the team for a season and I didn't really play that much, but I, I just got the chance to watch them work. I got the chance to see how they operated. I got to see how they motivated people. I got to see how they, tinkered and put this person over here and that person over there. Um, and I think more than anything else, I think I just saw how authentically they cared for the people that were on their team. Like mm-hmm. I always, when I was at North Carolina, knew that my coaches cared about me more as a, as a, as a, as a, as a human and as a person than they ever did as basketball players. And I think I've tried to take that as well uh, as part of the, the lessons I learned from, from, I don't know, being involved with athletics to, to sports. Um, I think the second one that we talked about a little bit, uh, which is what you highlighted uh, of sort of sports and confirmation and conflict transformation and bringing that over into the, the business setting in the business world and running a company. And I think the, the lesson that I would, have, I would have taken from that first experience and drawn over to running a company on a day-to-day basis is just that there's a lot of people coming from from very, very different backgrounds and very, very different settings. Uh, and you have to be cognizant of that as you're growing and scaling your organization. Uh, one person might have a very different view of a particular problem or a particular issue or a particular policy that we're enacting or a particular strategy uh, based on where they're from or their personal background or what culture they come from. Are they from the Silicon Valley Bay area from the Southeast? Did they grow up in India? Uh, are they an engineer and this is what they see every day versus are they a salesperson? And this is what they see every day. And you really have to take a lot of that into account as you're making decisions, as you're communicating uh, your vision, as you're communicating policies and just realize that uh, in a similar way that uh, from an athletic space, um, like people may come from 
all these sort of different disparate backgrounds, but through the game of soccer, they can learn how to work together and become teammates and go accomplish this incredible, amazing thing. In a similar way to business, we've got people from all these various different backgrounds who uh, are coming together, not necessarily through the game of soccer, but through the business of learn to win and the vision of what we want to go do in education to go accomplish something incredible. So uh, hmm. it's, I think, uh-huh. very similar in those parallels and uh, a cool and fun journey to be on either way. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate that reflection. And that's, that's something that's very relevant for, yeah. I mean, very relevant for basically our, my entire journey and finding myself, you know, leading a company (laughs) and every single stage of growth has been just a new, like a new turn on the corkscrew of learning exactly what you've been describing. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us, Sasha. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brett. This was uh, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me. 